This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a familiar guest for you here, my law partner, Jonathan Gilmore. We're going to talk today about a fairly complicated topic. So if this is, um, if you're driving, you probably can't take notes. This is probably one where you want to take notes or at least listen to it twice. Sometimes I talk a little quickly, so you probably can't listen to me on 2X on this one uh, and keep up. But but seriously, we're going to share our screen a, a couple times as well, so there'll be some visuals. You can listen to this on the audio, but it might be good to go to our website or YouTube where you can see the video if you want. And the, so to dive into the, without much further ado, the topic of today is a tenant in common, a tick, drop and swap, as we call them. And basically, this is, the, this is a way to do a 1031 exchange and in a way that different members of the LLC can separate and go different ways and both still preserve 1031 potential. And just, you know, high level, you know, 1031 exchanges are sometimes called a starker exchange, a like-kind exchange, from section 1031 in the Internal Revenue Code. Basically, if I buy a mobile home park for a million dollars and I sell it for $2 million, I've got a million dollars gain. If I depreciate the first million down, well, then I have more gain off cost recovery recapture, but I'll have gain. If it's more than 365 days, it's long-term capital gain. If it's less than that, it's short-term gain. And different tax rates, there's so long-term gains are going to be taxed more favorably, meaning less tax rate. But in order to do that, I need to sell real property and buy real property. So if I sell the $1 million property, I need to buy at least a one, you know, I sell for 2 million, I need to buy a new property for 2 million or more. It's gotta be investment property. It can't be a personal residence. It can't be a second home that you have personal use of. It can't be a baseball card collection. Um, That'd be, that would be personal property. So how do we do it? If we want to separate ways, if it's, if it's third and, and four other investors, and the five of us want to separate, but none of us want to take the tax hit. How do we do it? Well, we do it in the form of a, a drop into a tenant in common structure. And then we can all 1031 via a qualified intermediary. And those, those timelines, high level, you got 45 days to identify replacement properties. You got 180 days, not six months, not business days, 180 days to purchase replacement property of greater value. If you if you take some cash off the table, it's taxable as boot. You also have to replace your debt. You can't just get rid of debt and buy the next property cash. You got to have more debt and more purchase price um, in order to properly pay zero at the time of the sale or at the next tax return filing. So there's a little prelude to the easy stuff on 1031. Now I'll bring in the big guns here, Jonathan, and you can you can tell us the hard part and I'll try to keep up. So yeah, hand yeah. it over to you, man. Well, hey, you just conceptually, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, conceptually, you nailed it. We're trying to, um, you know, you said you said several times, you know, what is property that you can exchange? It has to be investment property. Um, one of the 
properties you cannot change in a like uh, like kind swap is uh, partnership interests. So the structure that we see a lot of our clients uh, having before the sale of a property um, is they've got, you know, limited partners. There may be a, our client may be the GP, but at some level, there's an investor's LLC, right? So uh, there's an investment group. And one of those investors uh, wants to go a different direction, like you said. They have partnership interests. They can't just get cash at closing and then go. Um, they have to convert that partnership interest into a real property interest. Uh, and they do that, um, like you said, by uh, dropping down, if you will, that interest into a real property interest as tenants in common. So like tenants in common, and we talked about this in previous podcasts, but it's a type of ownership uh, in real property where all the owners have a percentage of ownership in the property to possess the entire property. In other words, you know, one owner as tenant in common is 75% and the other one's 25% that equals 100%. They both own the property with their respective uh, percentage interests. So we have to talk about what we're going to talk about today is how does that happen? How do we get there? Well, um, and, and we've got a couple of examples we'll pull up here in a, in, a, in a minute, but the way we do it is conceptually is we have to figure out the amount that the new partner is going to have in the real property, or excuse me, the partner is going to have in the property when they become a landowner. That's basically what's happening. Uh, they become a landowner. So we have to figure that out. There's an economic component on that. Uh, a lot of times our clients have already figured that economic structure out, which is, look, if you were a partner in this entity uh, and you just got cash, what's that look like as far as real property interests when you become a tenant and common owner? And so a lot of times that- Can I, can I jump in on that? Because that's, yeah. I know you're familiar with it, but for our audience, that's pretty, it can be pretty complicated. So let's say it's it's you, me, and Jay, and we own a piece of real property and we're one third partners. Okay, that's generally pretty easy. And this is my prior example. If we, if we bought it for a million and we sell it for 2 million, we have a million gain. If we have $500,000 mortgage, let's assume there's no commissions or legal fees or closing costs for easy math. There's 1.5 million of net proceeds if we sell the property. So if we're all willing to just take our money and retire, then we're not going to buy another property. Well, then it's pretty easy. It's 1.5 million. And there's, if we're all one third partners, we each would get 500,000 cash. But in the event that we're going to continue on the party, but we don't want to um, all buy the same asset together, we want to buy our own assets, then we would each get an interest that shows, you know, 33 and a third percent of the land. So in a three person partnership like that, it's pretty simple where it's complicated more so in a syndication is if there's hurdles and if there's hurdles in the syndication where the, you know, let's say that the, the GP gets 30% promote up until a 15 IRR, and then it goes to 50% promote. Well, if the net sales price in this example of 2 million leads to an IRR that is above 15%, and then the GP is going to have a 30% clip up to the 15 IRR and then a 50% Well, you need to basically assume like it was a sale on that day. And then you, you, you do the math in the Excel formulas and you divvy up what the net proceeds would be. And that is out of the total pie. And if, let's say in this example, you, me and Jay, you guys were both LPs and I was the promoter and at, and at the 2 million price, my share of the proceeds would have been 50%. Well, I would have then got 50% of the proceeds. So, and you, you, you two would have got 25 and 25. So at the time of the tick, you need to own, own dirt 
in your own name. And of course, you're going to create a new LLC as a special purpose entity. Um, and then Jay's going to do the same and I'm going to do the same, but you're going to own dirt in 25%. And the, as I think it was episode 112, we covered a tenant in common with a roll up in the syndication. This is almost like the inverse where we're dropping down and you, you're going to actually own real property. And there's some hurdles with that and some, you know, some, some gotchas that we'll cover. But I just wanted to clarify that, you know, divvying up the economics is, is vitally important. And it's going to be based on the, the constraints of the in-place operating agreement. And I know we commonly use the term partnership interest, but, you know, the, the precise vernacular would probably be a membership interest in a limited liability company that is taxed as a partnership. Um, and, and, and that is like a partnership interest, a membership interest is not real property. So this tick mechanism is how we convert it into real property so as to make it proper and ready to buy more real property and to effectuate a 1031 exchange. That's right. And, and might be best if we want to pull up that ownership structure now, share your screen for the pre-drop. We can kind of show, you know, what, what it would look like before the drop. Uh, yep, there we go. So this is the pre-drop and there's a lot of white space in here. That's because we're going to fill it in for the post-drop. So, you know, if you're watching along here, we've got, you know, your investors LLC um, and we have two members, class A member, class B member. In this, in this instance, we're going to have the drop come out on the class A member side and it could be the GC side. A lot of our clients have the class B members and maybe there's an investor that wants to, to tick drop out and go their separate way. But those are the owners of Investors LLC. And as you can see, um, Investors LLC owns 100% of Homes LLC, which owns the mobile homes, and then 100% of the Land LLC. And currently in this model, Land LLC owns 100% of at the bottom of the screen, land located at, you know, one, two, three, any town USA, that's the actual real property. That's the dirt. Um, so that's what it looks like before the drop. Um, and then, and, and that's your standard kind of formula we see a lot with a lot of our clients. Uh, if you look at now the ownership structure post-drop, we'll see what it'll look like if a handful of investors, uh, in this case from the class A side, want to go their separate ways. We still have the class B members, which still owns their percentage interest in Investors LLC. Investors LLC now owns 100% in Land LLC. But as you can see, Land LLC in this, it only owns 42.5% um, of the dirt uh, because we have, based on the economics that you just talked about, um, we have figured out that this is the percentage structure that the class A members who are going to drop their interests out uh, are going to take in the land. Um, so... In this situation, now we have MHP Land 2, Land 3, Land 4, Land 5 LLC, and just your original Land LLC, all totaling 100%. They are now all owners. And yeah. let me let me jump in here on this. So that yeah. in this example, the, the Class A member was the general partner. There were four general partners. The four general partners now own DIRT in their own name, you know, quote, their own new LLC. But we kept... For this project, we kept the existing land LLC as the existing landowner. We could have dropped it down into a new SPE on its own, but in, because this was a syndication, those limited partners are already bound by the operating agreement of Investors LLC, which also had a private placement memorandum and an offering memorandum that disclosed all the you know, risks, roles, responsibilities of the general and the limited partners 
in the overall investment. So if you if you tick all those LPs out and you got you got 30 guys and gals and entities in there, you kind of lose the control of them. Right. Um, and it's hard to get them get them back. So if the goal is to let the GPs separate and take their money elsewhere, but still maintain control of the LP money, this is a way to do it. If you didn't want to tick out, well, then Investors LLC, the, the sole manager and member of Land LLC, could just do a 1031 in my earlier example for all $2 million. Here, the $2 million, you, know, you got about 800000 and change going to the LPs. You got about one point two going to the GPs. And you, get, you could have five potential different 1031s, noting also that you can 1031 into one, more than one property. So you add it all up, you could have you know quite a few different properties here. It gets pretty confusing for the title company and the qualified intermediary um, and the buyer because you the know buyer. the buyer the buyer's going to be buying from who. <laughs> you know? um, but that's that's part of it too that I know we'll cover. But um, that was the reason why Land LLC in this example did not become a new entity. It's a tick member. There are four members, the five members, excuse me at the time of the drop, you know, one, two, three, four, and the original land um, for a total of five. So that's how you can take it. And then if you take in, let's say you're going to go buy, a, you know, instead of a $2 million purchase, you're going to go buy a $50 million property. Well, you might, you've already got the tick structure set up. You might be able to tick and, and do a joint venture or even a syndication with other entities or other individuals and have them be new tick members in a, in a different acquisition, if it's a syndication, then it would be like we covered in episode 112 where they may get rolled up at a later date into a, into one entity. Um, but once you're rolled up, you can't, you can't really, it gets messier to try to roll back out. And so you really don't want to, you really want to plan this in the front end as much as possible. And it's, it's a lot of work as you can tell. And it is, it is. It's a, yeah, lots of charts, a lot of work. Um, part of what, you know, and we can talk about this with this on the screen. It's important is like you said, not, not only on the investment side, on the PPM side, having this, having authority, having like, you know, disclosures ready, you know, contemplating this potential event happening. Also, when you're negotiating the purchase and sale agreement, making sure that your PSA with the buyer has 1031 mutual cooperation language in there so that you can do this and you're not going to get any pushback. Um, it's usually just one paragraph in the PSA. It's not too much. It usually just details that in the event of a 1031 exchange, parties will cooperate. Doesn't, you know, you don't have to delay closing for this, but it allows the, you know, in this case, the seller to say, hey, buyer, um, here's an assignment of our contract to our drop entities. Um, and we're going to, you know, engage in a 1031 exchange and it really should be no big deal to the buyer that, you know, um, because they've already been put on notice. That this is a possibility through the purchase and sale agreement. You'd also reference the qualified intermediary and the title company. It's really important when we're, you know, thinking about the drop structure that we loop in those parties as early as possible, uh, just to let them know, hey, this is coming along because with the title company, for instance, uh, they have to revise the commitment. Um, it's, you know, to, to, to once we do the drop, basically, I'll just jump to, to how we do the drop real quick. The drop is a deed transfer, you know, from land LLC to uh, these MHP land two, land three, land four, land five LLC, where then land LLC retains a certain portion, all is tenant in common. It's a deed transfer. 
Well, then that changed the fee simple ownership of the property, which is referenced in the title commitment. So there's time and turnaround with that. So you want to let the title company know as soon as possible that you intend on doing that so that they're ready for it. Um, and so that's that's very key to communicate. Uh, with the the interested parties. I've had it happen before where I've been brought in the last minute and the title company wasn't even aware this was happening and they're right. kind of caught on their heels. And so- Well, and that's uh, why I want to add to that. That's why you want to make sure you let the buyer know on a regular basis, like, hey, we're going to have a tick drops that we're going to have an LLC change. So they be having the contract, but you let them know because the deed's going to be different. The assignment of leases is going to be different. The bill of sales is going to be different. You may have to fill out several. You'll have you'll have numerous deeds. You'll have um, sometimes the title commitments that they can just have make one title commitment just because they're still selling only one piece of property. It's just different ownership. But you may have um, additional transfer documents that the title company owners requires, affidavits, affidavits, authorizing resolutions. Who's the who's the signatory at the end of this rainbow? You know, you got all these entities with with upper tier entities. You got new SPEs. Um, and, you know, at some point you got to let the lender know, but we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> we will. And, you know, the uh, author, you, you, you touched on it, authorizing resolutions, um, kind of this is a this is a connected dot kind of flow chart situation. You, you everyone saw the before and after. A lot of times there are several variations and iterations of that org chart um, because, you know, it's kind of a negotiation of who's going where and, and, and how that's going to look. So that might take four or five different variations before you get to that final org chart. At that point, you then have to, as, as a lawyer, so what we spend a lot of time on, which is um, making sure that the resolutions authorizing not just the drop, but then the out sale to the buyer uh, are all in line and in, in, in unison. And then sending those to the title company, obviously, uh, to the qualified intermediary so that they have the proper paperwork uh, um, ready for the QI to take the, the proceeds at closing. Um, so, and you kind of touched on those. That's actually for the drop, you know, and in, in, in anticipation of the actual uh, closing. A lot of times, and we can start talking about the lender here as well, but, uh, you know, timing of this drop is crucial, right? Um, I've had a CPA tell me one time, well, you need, really need to do the drop two years in, a, in anticipation to make sure there's no, you know, IRS reclassification as, you know, partnership interest and, and thus losing the uh, benefits uh, uh, that a 1031 exchange would afford. Uh, for the most part, drops happen two days or less before an actual closing. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons is because uh, you, you have to prepare for unringing the bell in the event that closing doesn't occur which is very complicated. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just unwinding it, it's unwinding it with authority. Um, and a lot of times that authority comes from the beginning of the deal, like you said, with the PPM and operating agreement. So you have to make sure you're looking ahead. And sometimes you just don't have that uh, ability to do so. Um, well, let me, let me, I want to jump, I want to touch, I want to add to that. Yeah. Because I think about it, if I'm the syndicator of a deal or just a manager of a, you know, of a project, you know, with, um, the, let's say I'm the earlier example, I own 50 and, or I think we did thirds, let's say I own 50, you own 25 and Jay owns 25 and I'm the manager. I've, I have, you know, control. In this case, I don't have a majority vote, I guess, but I have control. If I tick out, how do I maintain that control? Well, I do via the tenant in common agreement, which is a separate contract that binds the tenant. Because if, if you, if I'm going to give you and give 30 LPs their own land, I don't want them selling it off because there's, you know, tenant in common 101, you know, you could sell it to Bob. Well, now I'm, I don't know, Bob, I don't even, maybe I don't want to be partners with Bob. 
So, but that's your right, unless you've contracted it away in a tenant and common agreement that says you can't sell it, or we almost sell together. So that's an issue. But when, when these, it's easy for a CPA to say, yeah, do it two years before closing. Well, who knows when two years before closing? I, I own property right now. I don't know if it's when's two years before closing date. But in, in addition to that, if I tick it out, I got to have more management agreements. I got to have more insurance on the property. Uh, presumably, my loan has a, you know, do not uh, encumber or modify ownership or transfer or sale clause. So if I tick it out, I probably need the lender's permission. Well, a lot of lenders are going to say no way, right? Or they're going to charge you a bunch of fees to analyze it to then say no way. So I think in, in the real world, what happens a lot of times is people do it simultaneously to close at closing or yeah. the morning of, and it's just rec- basically record this, record this, deed out, deed out. And the title company's got the new title commitment ready to go and owner's policy as if it's about to happen. And then, and then the attorney, you know, dutifully crafts a closing construction letter um, laying out the order of operations um, and then, you know, sharing all the requisite documents, many of which we've already covered. But I think practically the one year is safer than two days and two years safer than one year. And the safe being the IRS, if you do this two days for closing, they're going to say, why is this? Why are you doing this? It's almost like you're trying to do a 1031 exchange to not pay tax and they don't want you to do it. So there's not a, some IRS rules have a, a safe harbor, meaning like a bright line test. If you do this, like if you're, if you're, if you pay in, if you're self-employed and you pay your own taxes, one of the safe harbors is if you pay a quarterly estimate, at least as much as you had to pay last year, you know, you're not going to get with penalties and interest, you know? So if I'm usually pay a thousand a quarter, if I pay if next year, if I pay a thousand a quarter, I'm probably safe. I can't pay 900 a quarter and I can't pay zero, but there's no safe Harbor here. It's more, I don't even believe there's private letter rulings. There's the rev proc we've talked about before. Um, what is it? 20 dash 2002 dash 22, which is, it lays out the 15 factors for, uh, what would be a, a safe harbor tenants in common 1031 exchange. Um, but uh, that's not code. That's not codified either. So um, we, you know, you mentioned the tenant and common agreement, which we talked about in previous podcast. Uh, you know, that's kind of like the operating agreement for the real property owners. Um, yeah. And it, but, it, but it has to follow certain uh, rules and guidelines. There's preferred ways to draft that. And we, we have several different iterations that we use. Um, but yeah, to that, to that extent, you have competing interests, right? Um, you, you need to do the drop because you have to do the drop business-wise. There's business reasons for doing it and economic reasons for doing it. The competing interest maybe being the, the tax uh, component of it. And, and the timing as well. So, and also, like you said, the con- there's a control component of it as well, which is a tick agreement. Once the drop happens is in place, it governs the tick owners um, until closing, right? And, and everyone goes their separate ways. But if closing doesn't occur, do you roll it back up? Um, can, do you have the ability as say the, the GP, I'm using that term, um, or the manager, do they have the ability to roll it back up? Or are you just stuck in that kind of, that setup right until the next sale, uh, which is oftentimes why drops happen right before closing. So. Exactly. All right. What, what are we missing? There's a lot, there's more complexity to this, I'm sure. But I mean, in general, you've got a detailed checklist 
of things, do. docs and things that people, docs and steps that different parties need to do. You want to hit on some of those? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them we've, we've, we've hit on already, but you know, the org charts that you just looked at is usually key. That's like almost first step, right? Let's, what are we doing? Where do we, where is this ending up? So we usually prepare those first, uh, the consent resolutions for the drops. In other words, the entities that are approving the drops and the managers of those entities approving the drops, uh, those have to get prepared. The tenant common agreement, which I just discussed, uh, that needs to get prepared. Uh, the drop, what I call the drop deed, this is the transfer from land LLC to land LLC and the other new tenant in common owners, that, that needs to be prepared. Um, notifying the investors of, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what's going to happen. Um, the lawyers oftentimes don't prepare that, but that's generally addressed in our checklist. Um, you have to be prepared to form the new entities, you know, in states like Missouri, you can form the drop entities in a day. Um, some other states like Pennsylvania take longer. Some states take, you know, they're out of your control long, uh, uh, longer. So it could be weeks before you can form the SPs, just depending on the state. So you want to make sure you, you, you're in front of the curve with those. Um, if you form them too early, you need to make sure that you have certificates of good standing for the actual out sale to the buyer. You have to have those. That's, in there, that's, so. that's one of the annoying things. So I've had to deal with is, so you want to create your LLCs in time, but if you create them more than 30 days in advance, the title company is going to make you go back and get certificates of good standing that you're still in good standing 30 days later. So it's like, good grief. Just went through this process, just paid the fee. Now I got to go pay another fee to say that I'm still in good standing. I haven't even used the LLC yet. It doesn't really take any real role in life until closing, but that's right. That's right. Yeah. So you want to make sure that that hasn't fallen out of favor in 31 days. You want to, yeah, like I said, notify the qualified intermediary, send applicable documents to whatever they need. Uh, one of the items that we do is we prepare the signature blocks for all of the doc, the closing documents The you know, a lot of lenders, for instance, will require that they'll say who's signing. Okay. Third signing. Okay. Third signing is as what oh, authorized signatory what makes him the authorized signatory. Yeah. So that's the authorizing resolutions, which kind of ties and works backwards and say, this is how he has the authority. And then you just pre-prepare all the SIG blocks that happens. And that also saves a lot of time. Um, if we're able to do that, some lenders miss it and, and papers flying, you know, the day before closing uh, a lot. And so um, reviewing the doc, the existing PPM or operating agreement, just to make sure there's authority to do that. That's one of the things that we can assist clients with. Um, then we have to prepare bills of sale and assignment of leases or partial assignment of leases from land LLC to land LLC and other tick interest owners, because they are now part of the deal, right? Uh, as owners of the property. Um, uh, let's see, what else do we do? Um, so that's kind of in preparation of the actual drop. Those are, those are uh, I'd say, a non-exhaustive list of kind of the things that we do and we prepare and we, we analyze before the drop. Then you have the closing documents. So once you have that step, you then basically repl replicate most of those documents for closing, right? Assignment of leases, bill of sale. Now you have the out sale deed. So the grantor um, for the out sale deed are now all the tick members, right? Uh, one thing to say, the note that where this has uh, gotten interesting as well is we've actually been doing this sometimes before only to find out that the buyer is also establishing tick members. So we'll get all of our paperwork done. We'll get the deed done. We'll be kind of moving forward only to find out, you know, handful of days before closing, the buyer will come to the table and say, oh, hey, by the way, we also have ticks because we're syndication and we're bringing in money. So that then triggers a new commitment that triggers modification of the documents that triggers all sorts of things. So communicating with not just the QI and title company, but also 
in a way that's proper um, and timely, communicating with the with the other party. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, sending them a draft of the assignment, contemplating the tick, the PSA assignment and the contract assignment, saying, oh, hey, by the way, we're going to assign this from land LLC, if you will, to land LLC and these new tick members. Um, sometimes they'll reciprocate. They say, oh, yeah, hey, thanks for sending that. We're also going to do the same thing. So then we can inform title and say, only, you know, renew the commitment one time, right? It saves time. And if you're trying to do this three, four days before closing, kind of up against it. Um, so yeah, so so we've, I, I guess I've, I've covered most of what we do for the closing documents, the communication required, um, and then just really anything else that's required for closing, making sure that it now comports with the entities that are involved with the, with the post-drop. Yeah, you can make sure you get the right entities as borrowers and as guarantors and and all that kind of stuff. And then if you're the, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of it, it, so to speak on the law side, if you're the syndicator, you know, in your selling, you, you know, you, you need to communicate with your investors and you perhaps a letter that says, you know, dear team, we sold the deal. We made a million dollars because I'm trying to help you guys not pay tax. I'm going to do a tick uh, drop swap and allow you to 1031 your own, or I'm going to now take your 1031 money to this new investment. Here's your net shield. Here's your, here's your, here's your investment return and your, your pref and your hurdles. Now here's what they are in the future. And if it's in a new entity, what that looks like, if it's in a, if it's in a new project and just make sure you've got the authority that you're using, make sure you get your math, right. Make sure you get your splits, right. You don't want to get in the middle of, you know, being accused of doing it wrong. Um, you know, you can offer them their own counsel. Sometimes you can say, Hey, we're all going to go to the next party and I'm, I'm the manager. I'm taking all of our funds, but I still have to, I still have to abide by the operating agreement. Or you may say, I'm going, the next deal is not big enough for all of us. I'm taking out my shares, the GP, and I'm going to buy it on my own. And here's your money back. And then, you know, here's your money is going into the QI because the QI is the guy that holds your funds at closing. You don't get to touch it. So if you put it in the QI, you know, you don't get that money back until 180 days expires or hopefully and before that, when you buy a deal and it goes into that deal and you still don't get it back, but at least you get the deal. Um, so lots of moving parts in all respects. Um, and, you know, but again, if you do the, if you do the tick, tick out early, you need lender permission and you need to make sure your insurance and other things buttoned up. I mean, if you do it the day before, you probably still need lender permission, but if it's simultaneous to close the lender, you're probably not going to care. Um, or by the time they, by the time they recognize that they're already got their money, uh, I'm not going to advocate for that, but practically that's how it seems to happen. That the title company is the lender doesn't even really know. They just, Hey, we get it. We request a payoff. We get a payoff. The payoff's 500,000. Boom. You got paid off and, and they get paid before the deed swap. So they're not, um, yeah. They're and not, then the theory, yeah, they're not armed. That's right. That's right. And a title commitment, it's a requirement to satisfy and, and release the mortgage um, and, and to pay it off. So closing doesn't happen, but for that. So. That's right. All right, Jonathan, great stuff. Anything else we missed? Any other comments? That's it. That's what I got. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Should I hit record now? Oh, uh-oh.
<laughs> okay. You know me too well. Uh, thanks, man. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.